and Rob McGregor welcome you to a place where all kinds of phenomena flourish. Voices whisper, ancient secrets, signs and symbols are abundant. UFOs, ETs, ghosts, and even the dead move about freely. Here we meet authors, researchers, and investigators of the mysterious, the strange, and of the inexplicable anomalies that surround us. Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the mystical underground. Welcome to the Mystical Underground. Thank you for joining us. This is Trish McGregor. And Rob McGregor. And our producer and tech magician, John Posey. You can go to themysticalunderground.com where we make regular blog posts and where you can find out about our books. Our upcoming book is called The Shift, Reports from the Mystical Underground. Trish's new novel, White Crows, will be coming out this year. And Rob has been slowly releasing the audio edition of Indiana Jones and the Staff of Kings. Our next episode of Kings will be released March 6th, and another episode will be released sometime in March, later March. Our guest today is Gian Quasar, author of numerous books on mysteries of the unknown. His most recent one is Then Came the Dawn, an exploration of the Amelia Earhart mystery. I met Gian about 20 years ago at the site of the former Naval Air Station in Fort Lauderdale, where there was a commemoration of Flight 19, the mysterious disappearance of five Navy Avenger torpedo bombers on December 5, 1945, an incident that became the heart of the Bermuda Triangle mystery. Jean and I and my co-author Bruce Gernon uh, were there as part of our research for books on the Bermuda Triangle. Welcome, John. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Okay, John, we have to ask you, What's the story with your unique last name? It uh, It's from the Levant through Greek. I had an ancestor who liked it, and <laughs> in the Romantic age, he he took that off and on. It mixes with the ancestral surname, huh. and I kind of got stuck with it. I think it's it means fort. Okay. Well, it's a really cool name. <laughs> Nobody's likely to forget your last name, that's for sure. Well, you there's uh, several people who don't even believe this is my real name, but it <laughs> is my real name. Yeah, yeah. We don't cool. see many people as names that start last names that start with Q's. It's unusual. Yeah. So, what is it about the Bermuda Triangle and the Amelia Earhart story, uh, both of which you've written about in your books, that has uh, captured the interest of so many people worldwide? Mystery. <laughs> There's no answer. That's that's why the triangle, of course, as you know, is uh, the disappearance of uh, vast amounts of tonnages of ships and planes. And with Amelia Earhart in the Pacific, it's added to it the fact that she was a uh, such a, a public icon that no one believed she could make a mistake or that she could run out of fuel. And no one believed that such a huge search could not find her. And so you have, you know... Uh, center of personality cult who vanishes you know at the crescendo of her career and it has stayed with people ever since yeah uh, by the- she, i was surprised in your book where you she wasn't really that accomplished as a as a as a pilot well by the time she vanished she was a very good pilot but in the beginning of her fame uh, she wasn't she was um, had learned flying in the early 1920s in Los Angeles, 
And what was available then for uh, most any non-professional pilot was stunting and the derby stuff. Mm -hmm. So none of that uh, prepared her for long-range flying. And so uh, because of uh, Lindbergh, he may he really started the hero in uh-huh. which you could uh, garner huge amounts of money for doing firsts because it, pro- it showcased progress in individual courage. And that really became the mania. And she just at the right moment, a few days after Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic, she flew those uh, leaflets over Boston for a charity event. Mm-hmm. And that got her recommended for when they were going to take a, a woman passenger over the Atlantic. Right. And that's how she got uh, she got picked. But uh, at that time in her career, she had not flown steady for years, and she had really no real navigation experience. And she on that flight to uh, uh, Great Britain, she she wasn't even a pilot, right? She was just a no, passenger. No, yeah. she was just a passenger. She called herself a sack of potatoes. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I don't think it hurt that she was married to George Putnam too. Well, well that at was the time she wasn't. Yeah, uh-huh. this but, is when Putnam first came across her. Right, and uh, that it sounds like. Uh, Today it sounds like so what she flew across the Atlantic, but at that time there were after Lindbergh, almost everybody drowned after that or di- disappeared. Right? I mean, were there like eleven eleven people or eleven flights that didn't make it afterwards? Eleven or eighteen, something like that, and a couple of women were lost as passengers. Right. I think I mentioned them in the book. I can't recall their names, but I know the great Walter Hinchliffe lost. He disappeared. On there with his passenger, and it was something about national pride. You know, they had to be the first one now right. who ever tried to cross. So it was a very daring thing. She was a very courageous woman. To but do that. Uh, it's her personality that entranced everybody, and that kept her fame going and kept the offers coming. Yeah, and she actually wrote a letter to her mother uh, as if she had died on that flight. That was interesting. Uh, oh, to both her mother and father, yeah, pop-off letters. They were to be given them if she uh, didn't come back. Right. Hmm. Uh, so how did you come across those letters? Were they in uh, one of the books? or? Oh, yes, they've been uh, published many times. Ah, and okay. then Purdue has an awful lot of information, you know, a lot of the paperwork, the, the, yeah. uh, the letters and so forth. How long did it take you to do the research for this? Very long because <laughs> I'm not good at biography. I'm really not someone who delves into the lives of others. It's mystery that I seek. And, uh, it, of course, because of her disappearance, I had to look into it. But the biographic part is what took me so long because I just drudged along and I had to read biographies that were so... Pro Earhart a lot wasn't accurate, and then those who denigrated her, and then those who simply tried to uh, promote their own theory, and uh, it took a long time. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. Probably, you know, 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, you say it's not a biography, but there's a lot of information about her life, and pr- quite a bit of detail. I was uh, surprised at how much you came up with. Uh, I, I tried to tailor to what was relevant to her character that would shed light on, you know, how she how she managed, mm-hmm. what her personality was about. Yeah. Uh, talk about the difference between destruction and disappearance. Uh, polls have shown that a surprising number of people under 25 know nothing or very little about the Holocaust now, in which 6 million people were killed. Yet young people generally know about the Bermuda Triangle and Amelia Earhart. 
Uh, personal fame. Uh, she has uh, a symbol about her. It's kind of like the opposite of a scapegoat where we put all our sins on an individual. <laughs> People who become a, a glorified symbol, we put all, you know, all that we glorify on them, whether it's true or not. Yeah. And when someone like that vanishes, it, it's always mystery. It always come down to mystery with the triangle, with their heart. With anybody who vanishes, there is a question mark. Mm-hmm. And until you find actual tangible evidence, you cannot be sure of what happened. Yeah. You can say she's dead, but you know when and how. Yeah. Well, documentary producers are also captivated by mysteries. How many times have you been interviewed about the Bermuda Triangle? Flight 19. <laughs> Are you keeping track? <laughs> I don't know anymore. Uh, certainly there's over 30 documentaries done on with direct interviews with me. And then, you know, they sell to a subsidiary. I've been told I'm on this channel and that channel, and I never had any recollection of that. Right. Same but with after four After three years of about four different companies trying to negotiate my own television series, I really kind of got tired of what reality TV would offer me. And I just kind of said, forget me. (laughs) And I have not been interviewed except by an American uh, production company in the last few years, except a German company. And now History Channel has contacted me. But I really, you know, I'm very sedentary when it comes to TV. If they don't want to come to me, I don't (laughs) move and they won't film me now. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, Bruce is, uh, Bruce Kernan, my co-author of Bermuda Triangle, a couple of Bermuda Triangle books, is uh, I, every time I talk to him, he, he talks about one or two other new pro, uh, documentary producers coming forward and asking to interview him. And they go out on flights. So, and, and, of course, living right on the edge of the Bermuda Triangle helps uh, for for that. And, uh, so Florida? He, <laughs> yeah, right. Into the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he's he's continuing, to, continuing to pursue it. Well, I've not been filmed for years now because uh, I, I simply, even when they offer, you know, Los Angeles, I was to go there for in search of for ancient aliens. I don't know how many different shows, and then something <laughs> got all confused, and they weren't even going to tell me how to get to the studio from the airport. And I said, <laughs> get it. Yeah, right. Yeah. So So what's your, uh, before we move more into the Amelia Earhart story, what's your take on Flight 19, the incident that set off the legend of the Bermuda Triangle? Oh, my, uh, yeah, my book on that. That uh, that still is my number one bestseller. Okay, cool. All things even 10 years after publication or more. Yeah. That, uh, you know, I had to do all the, uh, really trying to rig it around how, uh, they got uh, lost to begin with. Uh, mm-hmm. They could have tried to work out their position, how they got back, how they got in the Okefenokee Swamp, yeah, which where right. I believe is there or right down in the Pinhook Swamp. Mm-hmm. And that's still, I've never changed my thesis on that. Uh, okay. No no evidence has ever come forward to change very tangible evidence that they did get back to land and they went down in a storm in southern georgia mm. okay so was it uh were the, were the remains found no nothing nope. oh, okay no, this is uh, the okefenokee swamp is a federal refuge so you can't right. go in and look the water is tannic acid so it will corrode everything it's yeah. a huge area it's like 660 square acres or something what six no more than that <clears throat> six hundred sixty thousand mm. square yeah. acres or something 
Yeah. Uh, do you think it was pilot confusion or something more that uh, caused them to uh, get lost, which seemed very odd since it was just a, basically a, uh, a, a, a flight that, you know, shouldn't have been unusual at all. Just a training flight, normal training flight. It was a cascade of things. I'm I'm sure that one led to the other. Certainly Taylor's compass was not functioning. Mm-hmm. So he had must have had a 30-degree declination on the compass and took them when they were on course, off course again. But how all of those pilots didn't see the location of the sun, how none of them chirped up and said we're going wrong until Powers got upset and told them we have to head west. So there's still a lot that cannot be explained that intervenes. Five aircraft simply don't vanish for a simple single mistake by right. one pilot. Hmm. Yeah. So, what, what prompted you to explore the uh, this 85-year-old Amelia Earhart mystery? I mean, other than the mystery. <laughs> uh, you're always in hopes of solving it or contributing mm-hmm. to it. Otherwise, it's it's not worth it to me just to wallow in mystery. Yeah. But uh, you know, I thought I I just did not believe that uh, all the spy and die conspiracies could be completely wrong, nor were they all correct. Uh-huh. And so I wanted to look into it. You know, that that can be investigated. Anything that happened on Saipan or the Marshall Islands or they had supposed witnesses, the radio communication, all that can be back work. No one's going to be able to go out and, you know, and do a grid search of the ocean anymore right. and, on, and find anything. Right. So yeah. I, I started that. Ironically, at, at the time, my eye doctor was the last of the Earhart's. Oh, really? He and his father, Wally, were the last one, were the only Earhart's to go to her 100th celebration, 100th birthday celebration in 1997. Uh. Uh. And uh, he's, uh, he's quite a character. He has the same hair color and everything. So you can well imagine how charming she was, the way she would uh, come off with people. Then as I continue to do research, I, ironically, yet again, I found out uh, someone I'm extended, acquainted with and on Facebook with was uh, was Putnam and her, her grandniece. Huh. give you an idea of Putnam, Max Ann didn't even know she was the grandniece until she was middle-aged. <laughs> the, the family, I guess the extended family didn't mention much about their great-great-uncle or whatever. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, it's, it's fascinating, her life contrasted by sudden disappearance than everything that came up afterward. Well, it sounds like you had your share of synchronicities when you were doing this. I mean, come on, an eye doctor who's an, who's an Earhart? <laughs> what are the odds of that? Well, Matthew still, he moved away, but uh, that was surprising me. I asked him, of course, when when I he was the junior eye doctor then, and the head eye doctor sent me down to him, and Dr. Matthew Earhart, and I said, are you any relation? And he said, I am. <laughs> and uh, he had uh, I knew his father was Wally was the one who agreed with Gurner and said he thought the Japanese were involved. Mm, and, yeah. Uh, so that was his dad. Yeah. But as far as her personality and also her appearance, uh, I think something that helped her in the beginning uh, is that oddly enough, she looked a lot like the young Lindbergh. They have the yes, same haircut. So. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, the, the same, same look. Smiling, the same Midwest mannerisms, that mm-hmm. shy look. Yeah, so, she was kind of like Peck's bad boy in some respects, but you know the the shy, but very well spoken, not uh-huh. pushy, but a well spoken woman of conviction and a writer too. Yes, she she knew how to write. That Putnam loved that that she yeah. could actually <laughs> write a book for it, and he could he, sell it. 
Yeah. Thing is, Lindbergh really was shy. Earhart ultimately was not shy, but she gave that appearance. That was her persona. <laughs> uh, just as an aside, have you ever heard uh, of Richard Cox? Is that name familiar to you at all? Great mysteries. <laughs> it's it's another mystery uh, disappearance. Uh, maybe you might be interested in it. We tried to it, <laughs> we tried to pursue it. He's the only. West Point cadet who ever vanished without a trace. Uh, and while being a cadet? While being a cadet, yeah. And uh, we looked into it and uh, did a proposal. This was many years ago. And we got rejection after rejection from publishers who all said that, what's the solution? We want a solution. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, because we couldn't provide a solution, you know, uh, we, we never got that book published. But I've always been kind of fascinated by that every once in a while a documentary comes up about uh, you know it's usually one of the uh when there's a series of mysteries that they're covering and uh, the richard cox mystery is usually one of the top 10 ones listed what year 1955 about i think something like that wow. he yeah. would he disappeared from the campus from the campus yeah and there uh th there was a mysterious man who came to visit uh and uh, seems to be lo uh, related somehow. It's a, it's it's quite a story. Uh, a lot of weirdness. In yeah, there's real strange strange things about him and his background and uh, how and that you know he never showed up again. And whether he was the, the theory that we had was that he was still alive uh, and he just didn't want to be be known. Uh, uh, and come out and admit it. But uh, you have a picture of him. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Is he on the internet? Have you looked? Yeah, the, yeah. You can you can uh, look up Richard Cox uh, mystery disappearance. Uh, I've investigated so many mysteries. You know, they all have that similarity. If it's a school one where someone seems to be involved, or the the kid is doing something odd. Yeah. Um, like Tommen did did before, and now I have to pursue whether he's D. B. Cooper. Uh -huh, right. Uh, yeah. Not too popular with some people, I'm sure, but yeah. everything ties in. Some of these people do intentionally disappear and yeah. don't wish to be found. Right. Yeah. Well, it says here that Richard Cox, okay, he disappeared January 14th, 1950, and he was declared dead seven years later. Yeah. So 1950, January 14th? 1950 was the day he disappeared. He was 21. Disappeared from West Point. What year was he, do you know? Uh, yeah, 1950. No, what year was he? In... Uh, was he a oh. you know, junior? Uh... Oh, I, I don't know. I yeah. don't remember that. Uh, and anyway, he was declared dead in 1957. That's so. standard. Is it? Hmm. So they, <laughs> and they didn't think foul play was involved at the time? They looked into it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, how could you not? And the, the FBI uh, looked into the case uh, and uh, you know, didn't, didn't find anything. Well, there's really nothing to find when someone disappears. That's always the big investigating problem is that people think disappearance leaves evidence, and it doesn't. Right, yeah. There's only ephemeral time... Uh, time sequences and so forth, and maybe he's acting different. Maybe he saw someone before. Maybe someone came to visit. But, you know, where does that induce one to go? 
Right. Yeah. Well, what what did you find out about this Cooper? Is that well, Cooper? Uh, you know, DB Cooper is the famous skyjacker. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. But in searching through potential people to be him, the evidence points that this was someone who knew aircraft quite well, who vanished, but was off the grid. The FBI can never trace him. Even in Canada, he had to have some connection with Canada. And uh, then I came across um, a young man who vanished off the grid in the 1950s named Ronald Tomlin. He's quite a mystery at his uh, college in Ohio. He looks just like the sketch of Cooper, only younger, of course. And he had the ruddy or Latin color to him, even though he's mostly German. Uh Uh, His grandmother was Italian. (coughs) And uh, he was in the plane club. I got his, you know, the (coughs) yearbook, all that kind of stuff. And uh, he disappears. No one thought he was really dead. He did a couple of strange things before he vanished. And uh, family believed he was alive the whole time, and the FBI kept looking into it. I don't think he was ever declared dead. And here, then, like 20-some-odd years later, a middle-aged man fitting the height, the eye color, the ruddy complexion, the hair, everything of Tommen is very well aware of 727s and does the skyjacking and pulls it off. And it actually fits everything about Tommen with one thing in particular that, you know, D.B. Cooper could never be traced. Hmm. The FBI couldn't find anybody who vanished and never came back or who just, you know, went on a vacation supposedly and uh, then didn't come back as if they'd died in the forest in a jump. Uh No nephew or niece or anybody ever said, this guy matches my missing uncle or brother or anything. So all the evidence points to the fact that D.B. Cooper, whatever his real name was, had disappeared off the grid quite a long time ago and probably spent some time overseas. So I have to I have to try and uncover the identity on a man missing twice, you know, yeah, vanished right. twice and took more than one alias name, and it's probably going to be impossible. Right. Uh. I think it, that might be tougher to do these days, <laughs> you know, to disappear that quickly and clean. these days. Yes, in 1971, it was still possible. Right. Yeah. But that was pushing it back then. Okay, another uh, pilot of the era, Laura Ingalls, was more experienced and held the speed and endurance records. She beat Amelia's flight across America by more than five hours. Was that competition of reason or part of it that Amelia decided to fly the globe and became a legend as well as a celebrity? She she had that sleek new Orion. Hmm. And I think that's when Amelia Earhart, you know, she had just... Uh, gotten her appointment at Purdue, and that was heavily dependent on her image as the foremost aviatrix in the world. Mm-hmm. And here she got blown away by this new plane and this young woman pilot. And that's when she said, I wish I knew on the tree in which planes grew, I'd shake myself down a good one. And probably Putnam <laughs> maneuvered that with the president of the uh, university, and they bought her that Electra. Mm. So this was this was her dream machine, <clears throat> and right away she planned on her world flight. So before that, though, she she had taken a solo flight across uh, across the United States uh, from California to Boston, wasn't it? Uh, In her Electra. Uh, I'm she not had, sure what. 
She had what flown across the United States several times solo for speed records and okay. uh, just flying back and forth. She was quite yeah. accomplished on the continent. Did, but didn't she have a couple accidents too? Well, when she was first relearning again outside of the public sphere, she had several accidents in her avian in 1928. Right, okay. But in uh, in the Electra, when she uh, she got that, I think she was pretty good with that. It you know it was being tuned up, and she was going here and there, preparation for the world flight. Uh, she uh -huh. crashed it in Hawaii, you know, and had to postpone her world flight. But that's the only time she really had an accident with the Electra. Hmm. What about her friendship with a psychic named Jackie Cochran? Jackie Cochran, very interesting woman, uh, <clears throat> head of the uh, women's, what was it, uh, the, not the waifs, wax, what was it? Oh, waves or wax. Women in the uh, women pilots. Uh, she was uh, a top pilot in her own right. She was married to Floyd Odlum, who had a big sh a stake in RKO Pictures. Uh, and she, uh, the psychic part she played down in her life, uh, she didn't uh, wish to be known, but for that in the public way, uh, it was you know the 1930s at the time when this was uh -huh. very erudite to be involved in seances and anything psychic. And... Uh, so I guess it'd be called more remote viewing is what she could do. Uh -huh. <laughs> she had agreed with Amelia Earhart that if she should go down, if Amelia should go down, that she would try and trace her psychically and provide help in the search. Amelia Earhart was quite into that at the time, having re read about the Duke University studies, which were just being published. And uh, so there, they, she actually tested Jackie's ability on a cross the continental flight when she and Putnam went and uh, Jackie Cochran said, you know, it, it came out just right that she could, you know, Amelia would call and she would tell her where she was and what she had done. Mm. But Putnam kind of wrote her a letter and saying she was way off on something. And uh, in her autobiography in 1954, Jackie Cochran wrote that she admitted she never cared for Putnam and that letter didn't make her like him anymore. <laughs> but uh, after she vanished, after Earhart vanished, at one point Putnam beside himself did come to her. Jackie Cochran remembered it as being soon thereafter, but I think it actually was a little while later. And she gave him coordinates, said that she did go down at sea, she's drifting, and she gave him coordinates, which she couldn't remember in her book. And he dashed off. Well, I skimmed through all the uh, telegrams being sent back and forth during the search. It was on the 17th uh, of July. She disappeared on the 3rd, was it? 2nd? 3rd? 2nd. Friday the 2nd. And so uh, on July 17, a request came to San Francisco a Coast Guard from Putnam asking them to search a certain coordinates. And I wrote it down in the book. can't remember it off the top of my head, but it was just west of the Gilberts. And the Navy refused to search in that location when it was transmitted. And they said they already searched there, and there's no point in going back. Mm -hmm. And uh, when one of the Navy admirals wrote his report, he couldn't figure out what Putnam was up to. He just assumed 
that he was basing the location on a two-knot westward drift. But from all the appearances, it seems to be the coordinates Jackie Cochran gave him, which was about 170 degrees east and 9 degrees north of the equator. And and Cochran was certain that uh, Earhart was drifting in an area that had been combed and was well combed by the Navy and simply missed. And she Hmm. stuck with that conviction in her book Hmm. and then believed that Earhart had uh, just eventually succumbed. Uh, What did other psychics say about the lost uh, flight at at that time? It's amazing how much Putnam was relying on everything. I guess he was just quite beside himself. There was two major Hollywood psychics, one of them talking to Walter Hinchliffe and Uh. Wiley Post, materializing in a Canadian group. And and they (coughs) were all basically saying the same thing to him, that she ditched at sea, that Noonan was injured and not very good, but uh, that she was okay and they were drifting, and then a Canadian, Canadian, rather erudite Canadian group said that Captain Hinchliffe materialized to them and said she came down on a reef, which tore the undercarriage out. Mm. Noonan was injured. She was all right. She was on land for a couple of days and then drifted free. And whether that meant the plane sank and they were in a boat, right. it wasn't exactly <clears throat> sure, and the life raft... But all this was coming into uh, Putnam over this time, and he believed there had to be some truth to it somehow. And he kept trying to urge, well, he kept urging Gene Vidal to try and get the State Department involved to search the Gilbert Islands more, try and get the president involved. Uh, <coughs> and then an, uh, an old uh, captain from Australia, uh, well, Canadian, or is New York, Captain Wilson, L.M. Wilson, saw that the search was being discontinued, and he. Uh, contacted the Herald and had them contact Putnam and told him about an Australian captain who told him about this reef in the Gilbert Islands, this turtle reef that's not on the charts. And so all this information went back and forth, and there was such a reef, supposedly the Gilbert Islands, the governor knew such a thing was said. And this is what really lit the diplomatic airways on fire. And, you know, uh, Cordell Hull did get the British to go search. Captain Handley went out in his rig, mm. and they couldn't find the the reef anymore. And all the information that they could get was that Earhart would turn around to the Gilbert Islands if she couldn't find Howland Island. Mm-hmm. So Putnam was certainly ready to believe that she had initially survived he filled the State Department with the conviction that the first two nights she was on land, thus accounting for a couple of the post-loss radio messages, and then drifted free because this is what all the psychics were telling him. And then mm-hmm. Alan Wilson came forward with very tangible information about coordinates. So she was the only one who had the coordinates besides Jackie Cochran? Or... Well, these were different coordinates. So Cochran's was more toward the equator. This was supposedly uh, 84 miles southeast of Tarawa. Hmm. But they never could find the uh, the reef. And then, of course, there's Winslow Reef that was not found at the time and was most certainly within her range. Hmm. And they simply could not find it because it had been mischarted. All said and done, Putnam, certainly by the end of the war, believed she could have survived. So when the rumors started beginning that she had, in fact, gotten to the Marshall Islands, he was ready to believe it. And yeah, so uh, were those around her inner circle. Where did the rumor come from that she was a spy? 
Oh, well, (laughs) (laughs) it's hard to to pick out how it really took hold. It was the first, you know, Gene Burns was the new stringer in the Marshall Islands that then heard that a American woman pilot came down there just before the war. And the Navy and the Marines were looking around trying to find out if it was, in fact, Amelia Earhart, because that's what was suspected. Supposedly, some of her belongings were found by the Marines. Yeah. And uh, the native Eliu Jambambam said that uh, that she was taken away to Japan. Now he didn't say spying, but she was taken away to Japan, uh. and that made the mother believe. The, it's really Mother Earhart who started all this in 1949. She went public with her views and that she thought that uh, her daughter was under verbal orders, and she was saying this in Time Magazine and the AP. Uh-huh. And all this kind of stuff that there was more to this than met the eye. So I'd have to say that the whole spy thing evolved from Amy Otis, her mother. Mm-hmm. And it didn't take hold because, uh, you know, the world had enough problems at the time. But uh, when Josephine Akiyama came out with her story in 1959 that she saw Earhart and Noonan executed on Saipan... Well, that was a different matter. That got, uh, you know, that got news coverage across the country. Who was this woman who, who reported that? Josephine Akiyama. She was a, a Saipanese. She was uh, biking to the beach to give her brother-in-law's lunch that day, and a plane, she said, came down and ditched, and the Japanese were all over it, and two pilots were in there. Oh. One looked like a woman with short hair, and they were marched off into the jungle and ah. then she heard the volley fire of a firing squad mm, and so that got everybody interested paul briand who was a captain at the time at the u.s air force academy teaching english was the first one to write a biography independent biography of Earhart. it had been 20 years since putnam's mm-hmm. soaring wings in 1939 oh. he uh he ended his book with that he's the one who really started it that she was executed by the japanese uh, on Saipan, and that was a very uh, influential book, uh, Daughter of the Sky. That was Putnam's book you're talking about? No, this is Paul oh. Brion's book. Oh, in Paul Brion. And hmm. it just began to escalate from there, even though every author, like Fred Gurner, who wrote the biggest bestseller there ever was about her disappearance, mm-hmm. all of the authors followed Akiyama's story, but they all tailored it and didn't believe it at the end. Uh, they wanted to believe Earhart survived, so nothing fit with her being executed. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But they still kept Akiyama as the justification to continue searching all these stories and native accounts of uh-huh. Earhart being on Saipan. Uh, you also end your book uh, going into detail about the ja- uh, supposed Japanese connection. Uh, do you think there's something to, to that, or is that... Uh, seem to fall apart to you well it's again it's where's where's the tangible evidence if it's japanese military they did not have the authority to execute anybody without tokyo and tokyo would have communicated through karor which was the colonial capital nothing would have gone straight to tokyo from saipan Mm -hmm. the navy would have uh, gotten information through truck which was the naval command islands and so if the 
we have to take into consideration what I think is a logical compromise, and that's the South Seas uh, company, the NKKK, which was a huge, powerful a trading company that basically it's hard to tell where the civil authority ended and their authority began. Now, if they got a hold of her, if she was transshipped through the South Seas trading companies, uh, she could have slipped through a lot of the uh, a lot of the paperwork, a lot of the the red tape, and maybe she died on them. I'm thinking, you know, the evidence is there that she did get to the Marshall Islands, hmm. and uh, that she might have died on them after you know spending weeks at sea drifting and then not cared for very well in the Marshall Islands, which were very backwards and would have thought her a spy. Weren't they controlled by the Japanese then too? Yes, but this was again civil, you know, backwater civil authority under Karor and the Japanese kept everything so so tight that the no one knew what was going on in the outside world. Mm-hmm. The Japanese government themselves knew of her flight. They even ordered a couple of ships to go look for her. But the the companies and the local civil authorities, they might not have had a clue as to who she was when she pops up a couple of months later after drifting. Yeah, she could have just been some lost person. (laughs) Well, spy, they would have assumed spy, and that's how they were. And then the trading companies, the major capital for the trading companies was Saipan. And so they might have shipped her there. And then realized who she was, and she, like the uh, the original stories from the natives on Saipan, is that this unidentified woman lasted only a week and died. Yeah. Um, not what not, about not all this conspiracy. Yeah. What about Noonan? Are they saying that he survived or died also? Well, he he kind of you know fades in and out of the stories. No one's really yeah. sure what happened. Just gone, or someone would say then executed. Well, they couldn't do that. Yeah, but except all the stories were that he didn't survive anyway, that only she did. Yeah, uh-huh. the psychics all said that they had that in agreement uh, that uh, whenever the plane went down, that he hit his head and died, it seemed. Shortly thereafter. Yeah. And the uh, the native Eliu on Marshall Islands only said an American woman pilot. He never mentioned a man. Mm. So Noonan might not have made it. And uh, you know how stories are going to escalate anyway. So I, I think she could have made it, but it's in the hands of the companies, not the Japanese military, because something would have turned up. You know, if they yeah. they would have contacted Karor and said, we have this female pilot, and Karor in Tokyo would have known who she was. Diplomatic things would have been worked out, unless she right. suddenly died then, and then there, no one wants to admit that she died under their keep. Yeah. Hmm. She, uh, she and George Putnam had kind of an unusual relationship. Can you... <laughs> George had an unusual relationship with everybody. Yeah. <laughs> he he was point. Uh, how to describe him? He sounded kind of a control freak in some ways when it came to her. I don't I don't know how much he tried to control her publicity, but she pushed them through the hoop quite a bit. Uh, he truly was enamored of her personality and character, but he had some of the strangest ideas to try and capitalize and get money that stupid auto gyro was his idea and i don't think she let him have input in her flying after that hmm. but he was always you know he was there to monetize and get her the uh, the fame to monetize her her thrill she was a thrill seeker that was very genuine about her and she also but wrote it was a very expensive thrill yeah. yeah she also wrote him a letter before they were married uh basically 
declaring that uh, they should have an open relationship. Uh, yeah. Which adultery was okay. Yeah, that was new, that, that that wasn't part of the publicity though. <laughs> no, that wasn't. I don't think anybody really is going to uh, think it's so modern that you're going to condone uh, betrayal. Yeah. I think that's being quite modern. But uh, even when Paul Briand got a hold of that letter for the first biography in 1960, he redacted that part from it. Really? Oh Why? yeah. Oh, I, too. He didn't. He was very enamored of her. He only began to suspect later that she had feet of clay, he feared, because he encountered the conspiracy of silence. He's the one who coined that term uh-huh. for him when he talked to Cochrane and Manson, all these people that, you know, the sister, the uh, Floyd Odlum, the attorney, and so forth. He said, you'll, you'll notice there's a conspiracy of silence around her memory. Uh-huh. Yeah. So they, they were protecting something. Hmm. And uh, who knows? Yeah, there were several re- things they could have been protecting. But and for 1959, writing about Earhart and then, I guess, uh, putting out the letter unredacted that it's okay for passing fancies and all that. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, how long were they married? What was it, 1931, 32, they married? March. Oh, and so about five years. Then he married fairly soon thereafter to... Uh, Jean-Marie Consigny. Who's that? After she vanished. So he wanted her declared dead uh, before seven years? Was that the case? Oh, yeah. He got her declared dead quite quickly. A couple years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was that so he could could remarry? Yeah. So Hmm. he did that specifically so he could marry the other woman? I would assume so because Uh there's, you know, he said enough during the war and certainly bragged enough to the family that he indicated she could have been alive. I think he completely made up that whole story that he was in the China Burma theater and uh, was told to go uh, listen to Tokyo Rose's broadcasts, and that might be Amelia Earhart broadcasting under duress. Mm -hmm. He claims he made this three-day trek through dangerous enemy-held territory to go listen to the radio and said it could not have been her. And... uh, Earhart's sister, uh, Muriel, she wrote that in her book, her her biography of her sister at Putnam made that story, and everybody repeats that, but I didn't bother to get his military records to see what his postings were, but I would seriously question that that's even a true story. I know how he lied about the Wilbur Rothar affair, mm. and uh, I've got the court records on that, and he just... Uh, he was he was that type of uh, person, you know. The he wanted uh, the sanctimonious memory of Earhart to go on. He wanted it uh, to be uh, pure. <laughs> but of course, the the effect is that within her family and close friends, he certainly indicated he believed she could have been alive, and that's what the mother certainly believed after Jean Burns' 1944 article talking about this unidentified white woman pilot who came down in the Marshall Islands mm-hmm. in 1937. So Amy Otis was all over that. She was sure that Earhart was then taken off, and she begins once again the whole idea there was an ulterior motive to this mission. Hmm. Why was there a Coast Guard cutter station near where she was supposed to land on that final leg? Uh, Radio detection. They would be sending out a beam, and she would home in on it to lead her to the island. They had brought the av gas and everything. They had widened the airfield. so there would be a lot of people there uh, that were involved in this. 
so the U.S. military was involved to some extent in her flight. Oh yes, the uh, the Ontario was stationed halfway uh, in between, so they were providing uh, broadcast for the number, you know, uh, Morse code for her to home in on. And uh, then another, the Swan would be between uh, Hawaii and Howland Island, and if she would take off from oh. Howland, she would okay. home in on that and go on the way to Hawaii. Yeah. Huh. So, so they did a lot for her. Yeah, sounds like it. Well, okay, so after all your research, what, what do you think happened to her? I think she did turn around. I don't think she she couldn't get Howland Island. There's too much evidence that her receiving antenna did blow off when she took off at Ley, and so she couldn't receive any voice transmission on 3105 kilocycles. She was too haphazard and did not go to the radio Direction class, so she didn't know her Bendix uh, transmitter could not detect on 7.5 megacycles, and that's what she had agreed with the Atasca would be the frequency they would transmit the homing signal on. So she couldn't pick up the homing signal. She couldn't get any response when she's talking to them because she didn't know her receiving antenna on the bottom of her aircraft had blown off. Uh-huh. And uh, 500 uh, kilocycles, she could. Uh, she couldn't transmit on, but she should be able to have picked up uh, the other homing signal, but apparently she didn't. Mm-hmm. And so I think after a while, she thought Noonan was just really fouled up, and she she turned around and went back to the Gilbert Islands. And it's when she switched to the, the shorter day frequency, 60 to 10, is it, that they had no communication. They couldn't get anything from her. And it's just another indication she was much further out than she admitted. And I did all these mathematics for the difference in time change back then. You know, there was not just this normal zone time change. Right. Every day. There was a 30-minute time change out in the Pacific. And it's obvious from what she's saying that she didn't make the adjustment. Oh, so when boy. she says hour, she means half hour. You know, it was not lined up. So she's still with a heavier headwind, which they've concluded she did have. She still thought she was on time at Howland Island, if you uh. look at the actual clocks that, as they would have uh, appeared had she adjusted them properly and adjusted her clock properly. And so there's no way she was on time at Howland Island. She was still a couple hundred miles out when she thought she should be over them. And so oh, I think wow. she was within range of the Gilberts and did did drift, probably got down on a, uh, a reef somewhere. Mm. Those uh, messages that... Nauru picked up the first night. These were not a hoaxer in the continental United States. These were picked up locally. Mm. The Harry Barnes, the operator, if I recall his name correctly, said it was the same woman's voice that he picked up when she was in flight, and that was her voice uh. reporting, I see a ship inside ahead. And he said, same woman's voice, but there was no background engine sounds now. Mm. Ah, Okay. And so it sounds like she was down. She was trying to get attention. She was overmodulated. He couldn't make out what she was saying. And so I would agree that she did survive somewhere and was able to use her battery power, which would last for eight hours. Uh-huh. And then probably drifted off. I don't know if Noonan died then or later, but I think she might have drifted in her plane or in a mm-hmm. raft for a while and eventually did get picked up around the Gil- around the. The Marshall Islands, 
and probably looked a wreck. That's what all the witnesses says. She was very, you know, sick looking and uh, suntanned. <laughs> yeah. and so you can imagine it wasn't right away. It's months later now. Yeah. Wow. And they wouldn't know who she was from Adam on those backward islands. Uh-huh. And I think the companies took over and didn't know at once who she was either. And eventually in Saipan, maybe she did go there for a week. She dies in the hands of the chief of police, hmm. who apparently was very brutal. He was local. He was not, these were not Japanese. And if the companies found out then who she was, I don't think they would want to admit that she suffered that. Right. Mm, that would be bad for business. Yeah. Huh. Well, what what kind of pilot was Noonan? I mean, was he an accomplished pilot or was he? I, I, he might have been a pilot. He was a navigator. Oh, okay. He was, uh, I would say he was a very good navigator when he wasn't drinking. Oh, uh, okay. But he did have a boozer problem and... Uh, the spy and die theorists like to dance around it or really minimize it to make it look like Earhart was on a top secret mission. And, you know, of course, for something like that, you're not going to take a subpar navigator. Yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I don't know what they try and promote her being on because there's really nothing she could do from an Electra at that uh, yeah, uh, right. course. <laughs> yeah. There was no photo bombing back then. And, of course, any island would know they were photo bombed. That yeah. came about 1939 and was used in the war where basically big flashball bombs were dropped and then they made a big light down on the bottom and the cameras overhead took pictures. Uh-huh. Well, she clearly wasn't doing that and her course called for her to be over Japanese territory at night. Mm. So she's really not going to see anything. I don't know what they thought she would be spying on. But uh, if the Japanese did get involved, again, it's not knowing, it's the companies and not knowing who she was a couple of months later after mm-hmm. drifting Hmm. Yeah. So, are there part any of the legend is true? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. But it's... no one looked in it in that regard because they got consumed in 1960s in the you know still the generation that fought World War II. They believed the Japanese were capable of anything nefarious, right, right. Uh-huh. and they were going to believe that she was intentionally executed, and they didn't bother to check was that even possible. And of course, it was not. It had to come through Tokyo. Any orders. Uh-huh. Mm, yeah. And they knew who she was in Tokyo. Uh, are there any contemporaries who compare to Earhart? Today, no. Yeah. There was none to compare to her back then. It was really her personality. We've forgotten that with time. It's, it's sad that her footnote is really one of aviation, and people forgotten that she was the center of a personality cult. Yeah. She was really that charming. She was very charismatic. She was a thrill seeker. She was very stubborn. Hmm. But there was no no one in personality. Well, who took her place? No one did. Even though uh, uh, Smith, Eleanor Smith, was clearly the best woman pilot in the country, if not the world. Uh-huh. Uh, Ruth Nichols was a very good pilot. So was Jackie Cochran. Uh, Amy Johnson in Britain. Then there was Ellie Beinhorn in Germany. There's a number of, you know, and then Laura Ingalls was very good, except she shot her mouth off about Nazism too much. <laughs> and uh, but none of them had the personality of Earhart. It wasn't really piloting skills that ultimately mattered that kept her fame going. It right. was, you know, her character. Uh, mm, that's interesting. Yeah, so that's... So today uh, the equivalent would be 
Instagram influencers. <laughs> Sounds so well, empty. Think of someone who is an idol today and you really don't know why. Yeah, yeah. right. Oh. It's, it's, it's their personality is ultimately going to be it. Because if it was, people blame Putnam for eclipsing Eleanor Smith and even what he did to Lady Mary Heath and these other uh, accomplished aviatrixes. Yeah. But really, who took her, her place after she was gone? No one, because they did not have the personality. It ultimately right. came down to that. Uh, uh, was there was she and Noonan ever romantically involved? No. Okay. That was something that Putnam, that was all rigged for, you know, Flight for Freedom with Rosalind Russell and Fred McMurray. Yeah. That was thinly based on her last flight, and that started a lot of the spy stuff, too, the 1943 mm. movie. And uh, so that was, was that based on Noonan a book? Would, what? Is that based on a book? No, that was just an RKO okay. movie that uh, Odlum and Cochran had greenlit. Uh, and so it it really started a lot that she was on a, a bigger spy mission for Japanese fortifications, and she was to intentionally vanish so the Navy could come looking for her and then spy on the Japanese. Hmm. It was very Hollywood, very buy your bonds in this theater. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, Jian, thank you for uh, coming on today. So we really appreciate it. Tell people, uh, Jian where they can find your book, your website, give us the details. Yeah, and what are you working on now? Thequesterfiles.com is my website. They can see all I'm working on. I'm working on some very unexciting murder <laughs> mysteries, trying to uncover a serial killer in San Francisco murders. The next book out will be Horoscope, in which I hopefully concisely make my point, exposing who the Zodiac killer really was. Oh, really? Wow. Yes. And uh, so that will be the next thing. And then books maybe on uh, some rather un unpopular views on the flying saucer phenomenon. Oh. About U.S. <laughs> secret, uh, US secret experiments and so forth. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Well, um, and how about Richard Cox? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll check. Yeah, take a look. Yeah, just take a look. Yeah. Interesting story there. There was uh, rumors that he uh, joined, uh, became not joined, but uh, was uh, uh, enlisted by the CIA, mm -hmm. and uh, and then was uh, seen in uh, Miami Beach, uh, Havana, and so there's a real mystery there about uh, his uh, w what happened to him after he left. Well, you know, they would have, uh, they could headhunt military academies pretty easy and recruit. Yeah. yeah. And that was a very paranoid time for the CIA. They would, they dreamt up so many strange, so many strange uh, operations. You know, that one where they were going to be dropping all these flares right. off Havana and convince the people that it was the second coming and they were to join the angel throng and overthrow <laughs> Castro. <laughs> yeah. God. Interesting. Yeah. Well, okay. This has been great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jan. Let us know when your next book comes out. Yeah, we'll look. Too. We'll look forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Good talking to you Good again. Talk. You too. Yeah. Take care. Okay. Bye. Thanks for joining the Mystical Underground. Visit www.themysticalunderground.com for the latest blog post and book info. 
Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Listen to the podcast at podcast.themysticalunderground.com. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Send email to podcast at themysticalunderground.com. And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical. Yeah.